Oh, my God. 
minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Thursday morning on this July the 15th, day six in the month of Menachem Av, our first, or I should say our last real full morning of our nine days format. Tomorrow uh, we'll sneak in a couple of Arab Shabbos selections, I'm sure, <laughs> for Arab Shabbos uh, Chazon. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine and his uh, lecture series is coming up in just a minute. Uh, it's a Thursday with 75 degrees, partly cloudy weather, and a high temperature of 88. <clears throat> Clouds tonight, low 75, and tomorrow partly cloudy. A high Friday, Erev Shabbos Chazon, 94 degrees. I thought usually the mid-90s is reserved for Tisha B'Av. Wow, 94 for an Erev Shabbos Chazon. Tisha B'Av is Saturday night and Sunday. Monday, we are in Israel, please God, with NCSY. Uh, those of you who are anxious to have your message included in Tuesday morning's broadcast from Yom NCSY, that'll be Tuesday morning, uh, Yom NCSY, those of you who are anxious to um, to have your message included, send it to, and you could say hi to anybody, that's at Yom NCSY or anywhere, send it to Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, please, please Put in the subject line, Yom NCSY, so it's easy for us to uh, filter those out and use them during the broadcast, which will be recorded on Monday night in Israel and which we will present on Tuesday morning here at JM in the AM. So a lot of excitement coming up. Uh, our regular format, again, Monday is usually the 10th of Av. Uh, Monday is usually the stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach, so no doubt, no doubt we'll be presenting those. Um, and then Tuesday, that's how we're going to open up our brand new season with a bang by being at Yom NCSY with some amazing Jewish music, some great guests, and your messages. So again, if you have someone specific that you want mentioned on Tuesday morning's show that's participating in Yom NCSY, it's nachom at nachomsegel.com, nachom at nachomsegel.com, and just put in the subject line Yom NCSY. Rabbi Beryl Wine, the Jewish Societies in Retrospect series, Jews in Victorian England is the topic. You are listening to JM in the AM. Everyone, and thank you for coming. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns uh, the reaction and the construction of Jewish society in Victorian England, 19th century. Uh, we are convinced now, I think, by uh, events that occurred uh, that the Lord... Uh, has his plans, and that uh, strange things happen, especially to the Jewish people, unpredictable things. England will play an enormously important role in Jewish history over the past uh, century. And uh, we can say uh, uh, that if we're not for England, uh, there would be no state of Israel. That doesn't mean that they wanted to have a state of Israel, but they were the catalyst for it. And we are marking now uh, 
the uh, centennial of the Balfour Declaration. So uh, England has an important place in our story, and that's ironic because in the uh, 13th century, the Jews were expelled from England. And that from the 13th century till the 18th century, 500 years, uh, England was Unrhine. There were no Jews in the country. Shakespeare never saw a Jew. Beginning in the 18th century, it really began a little before the time of Oliver Cromwell, the rebellion against the king, the uh, upheavals in uh, England, the rule of parliament over the king, Jews began to trickle back to England. They were all illegal, but no one seemed to bother about it. And uh, in the middle of the 18th century, there already were synagogues in London, the famous Bevis Marks congregation, and most of the Jews who came were Sephardic. And they came from Amsterdam. And the Jews in Amsterdam were Sephardic, Spanish, Portuguese Jews who came to Holland after the expulsion from Spain. Now, England uh, is going to become a world power. And the advent of Jews in English society uh, is therefore important. I have uh, thought that, for instance, if Jews would have come to the United States at the time that they came to England, it would have had far less of an impact on the Jewish world and on Jewish events, because the United States had no impact on the world or on events until practically World War II. But Jews in England, because England is going to become the major player in world society, it's going to be the British Empire, the presence of Jews there takes on an added importance. Uh, and that's all part of the uh, way God runs the world, where Jews find themselves. So uh, when uh, Queen Victoria in the early 1800s becomes the Queen of England, uh, officially Jews have no rights. Unofficially, the Jews have many rights, and some Jews are powerful. Now, there are different groups of Jews. The Sephardim came. The most famous Sephardic Jew is naturally the Israeli. And uh, the Sephardic Jews uh, were upper class. England was a class society. And uh, the Jews belonged to no class, and therefore they could pretend that they were upper class. So those were the Sephardic Jews. Then, in the middle of the 1800s, Ashkenazic Jews came, mainly from Germany. 
and then at the end of the 19th century towards the end of the Victorian era you had a mass emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe Ashkenazic Jews who came to uh, settle in England and uh, these groups uh, functioned sometimes together sometimes at odds with each other to constitute Anglo-Jewry so let's begin the tour in the early 1800s England is occupied in the Napoleonic Wars Napoleon France attempts to dominate Europe England in an alliance with Prussia and other countries eventually defeats Napoleon when England defeats Napoleon then England becomes not necessarily the dominant partner in Europe but it becomes the checkmate against any other country in Europe and that was British foreign policy that no one country should be powerful enough to rule Europe and England would always back the weaker to prevent the stronger from taking over now Anshul Mayor Rothschild in the late 1700s establishes his bank in Frankfurt am Main he has five sons each one of his sons opens up a branch of the bank and because they trusted each other uh, you have the concept of international banking across country lines so in France in Paris there's James the Rothschild and in Frankfurt there's William and in Vienna there's Solomon in England there's a man Nathan Meyer Rothschild and he comes to England in the early 1800s and he establishes a branch of the Rothschild Bank it's called N.M. Rothschild and Company now when he comes to England uh, he faces great hostility uh, the remarkable accomplishments of the Rothschilds uh, are even more remarkable because of the hostility that they faced and uh, there were other Jewish bankers as well but the Rothschilds came to dominate the scene now Nathan Rothschild was a traditional Jew uh, William was an observant Jew James was not at all in fact the Rothschild house in England the bank was closed on Shabbat until the 1920s and uh, Nathan didn't do business on Shabbat the Rothschilds perfected the art of floating bonds to uh, finance countries Uh, for instance uh, we have that today all 
the United States owes what nineteen trillion dollars or something. So how do you pay that off? How do, that, that means you're missing that money in the treasury. So uh, what happened was that the financial markets of the world kicked the can down the road. And they said, uh, we will sell bonds backed by the British government, let's say, or the French government. And uh, the bonds pay a certain interest, but they're not due for another 15 years or 30 years, whatever. And uh, the Rothschilds facilitated investors to buy the bonds. And therefore, uh, they were a vital part of uh, the English society, and they were a vital part in helping build the British Empire because they financed the deficit. That was Nathan Meyer Rothschild. Now, he wasn't the only one, but they were the major players. They set the market. And uh, it became an enormously lucrative business because they got a commission. They got a commission from the buyer and a commission from the seller. And they had a spread on the interest rate. And uh, this system is in place today. It's a more, uh, it's more uh, refined. There's the International Monetary Fund. It crosses national lines. But for instance, China has financed the United States over the last 10, 12 years meaning that they bought the bonds. Whether that has implications other than financial is a matter of discussion. But uh, this is a vast oversimplification of, the, of what goes on, but uh, the Rothschilds played an enormous role in English society, so much so that they could not be ignored. And for the first time, therefore, he had Jews that were in the upper class, that owned uh, great estates, uh, that imitated the uh, lifestyle of the uh, great and mighty in England. Now, Rothschild had a brother-in-law by the name of Moses Montefiore. Montefiore, as many wealthy men then and now, after a while got tired of making money and devoted his life to philanthropic and national causes. And Montefiore saw himself as the protector of the Jewish people. And because of their wealth, and because of their influence. So he had entree to the queen, which was unheard of. So for instance, in 1840, 
there was a blood libel in Damascus, in Syria. There was a French priest. Uh, and there was a boy that disappeared. And the priest said that the Jews had kidnapped the boy in order to extract his blood, in order to make matzahs. It was 1840. Uh, because of that, the uh, leading Jews in Syria then were arrested. Under torture, they admitted to anything. And they were to be sentenced to death. Uh, Montefiore uh, obtained a letter from the Queen uh, to the Sultan of Turkey, because Syria was then under Turkish rule. And uh, he traveled, and he defended the Jews, and eventually the Turkish authorities came to the conclusion that the Jews were innocent, and that it was all a made-up story. And this made Montefiore a hero in the Jewish world. So much so that many Jewish organizations and schools were named after him. I remember in Chicago, there was a Jewish school, the Moshe Montefiore Talmud Torah. In New York, there's a hospital, a Jewish hospital. Throughout the Jewish world, he was famous. And Montefiore uh, was not always successful. In 1858, there was a Jewish child that was kidnapped in Italy, in Mantua, and forcibly converted to Christianity. And the Jews protested. The family demanded the return of the child. The Pope refused. Uh, Montefiore intervened, but this time unsuccessfully. But Montefiore traveled to the land of Israel seven times. He lived a long time, lived over a hundred years. And uh, travel then was not travel now. And his coming to the land of Israel was always seen as a spark of support for Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. And we have, therefore, in Yerushalayim, uh, the famous windmill that doesn't work. <laughs> and But you have the colony Yamin Moshe, named for Montefiore. Um, and his, he was a uh, profound influence. And with this, there's another strange thing that happens that in England, in the Victorian era, there arises in the Christian world a proto-Zionist movement, a movement of Christians who say that Jews should move back to the land of Israel and that the land of Israel belongs to the Jews. And this uh, movement... Uh, expressed itself in all different ways. 
Uh, for instance, there were two uh, English spinster ladies who financed Solomon Schechter to research the Cairo Geniza on behalf of Cambridge University. Uh, the English also uh, sought to protect the Jews who lived in the land of Israel from persecution by the Arabs and the Turks. And all of this, uh, so uh, Montefiore and the other Jews, uh, the Rothschilds, all tapped into something in English society that gave it an affinity to the Jewish people. There were even those in England in the Victorian era who claimed that the British were the Ten Lost Tribes. Well, they were a lost tribe, we'll agree, but whether they were the Ten Lost Tribes is a different matter. And uh, so there was an undercurrent, even though there was very uh, strong anti-Semitism, was built into the society, but there was an undercurrent somehow uh, that Jews were going to be tolerated and uh, helped. And when there were great persecutions by the Tsar in Russia, uh, so uh, the British monarchs protested. Now, because of this, uh, uh, this relationship, so to speak, uh, for the first time, Jews who wanted to really be English, because Montefiore never really was English, and Rothschild was never really English. But Jews who wanted to be English began to convert to the Anglican Church because that was their entry into English society at the level that they wished. And this uh, really is the story of the Israeli. Israeli's father was a uh, member in the Bevis Marks congregation in London. Uh, he engaged in a very bitter dispute with the leaders of the congregation. And in a uh, fit of pique, yeah, he converted his two sons to the Anglican Church. Now, it wasn't only because of that that he wanted his two sons to get ahead, and he felt they couldn't get ahead if they remained Jewish. But they kept their undoubtedly Jewish name, and uh, Disraeli, who was a uh, very talented person, he was an author. He wrote, uh, he became very wealthy from it. He wrote dime novels, hundreds of them. And uh, he had great political ambitions. 
and he was somewhat of a character. He wore outlandish clothing, green pants and a yellow vest, not typically British, but uh, he got himself elected to Parliament as a conservative, as a Tory. He was a good speaker, and he was never uh, lacking in self-confidence. And he would uh, rise in the ranks of the conservative party. He met a great deal of anti-Semitism. He had a unique way of deflecting it. He didn't say, uh, well, now I'm Anglican and I converted and I'm as good a Christian as you are, which is what the other Jews did to try to deflect the anti-Semitism against them. He said, on the other hand, no. He said, uh, my ancestors were priests in the temple in Jerusalem when London was a marsh. I come from a family, he said he came from King David. I have royal blood in me. I'm better than you. Which was really a different tack completely. And because of his talents and his abilities, he rose to become the Prime Minister of England. A very unlikely event. And he had strong connections with the Queen. He was one of the Queen's favorites. Now, England at that time had two major political parties. Uh, the Liberal Party, uh, which was headed by w- uh, William Gladstone, and the Tories, which was headed by Disraeli. Uh, Gladstone, the Liberal Party, uh, would eventually morph into the Labour Party. And that was the party that most English Jews favored and voted for. But the Israeli was of such a consequence that he was able to pass a bill, and it was called the Jew Bill. In England, they're very direct. It's Jews College. So it was called the Jew Bill, which to a great extent legalized uh, Jewish entry and citizenship and rights in uh, England. And uh, this was done, uh, this is one of the products of the Victorian era. And because of it, it encouraged emigration of Jews to England. The idea of quotas then, it didn't exist, it didn't exist in the United States and it didn't exist anywhere in the Western world. All of this came about later. It came about later because of the vast numbers of immigrants that chose in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, uh, Europe emptied out. In the 1800s, uh, more Irish left Ireland than stayed. There was a great famine in Ireland. 
They came to the United States. They came to England. Uh, Italy emptied out. And Eastern Europe started to. And uh, you had Eastern European Jews who started to come to England in numbers already in the middle of the 1800s. And they came to uh, the East End of London, to Manchester, and to other places. They were Ashkenazic shtetl Jews. They were not Montefiores. They were not Rothschilds. They were not part of the upper class. And they didn't see themselves as part of the upper class. But England would provide for them a haven. And if they did not become English, uh, they hoped and were certain that their children or grandchildren would certainly become English and fit in. So as the Jewish community grew, organizations, Jewish organizations took hold. And one of them was uh, the United Synagogue, which was an organization of synagogues. And the United Synagogue in the 1860s decided to uh, create an office called the Chief Rabbi. Uh, the chief rabbi was meant to uh, represent uh, the Jewish world to the non-Jews, but it was also meant to centralize Jewish life in England. Also, the establishment of a Beddin, uh, the establishment of some sort of order that it, uh, which, for instance, in the United States never happened. The United States, as far as Jewish life was concerned it was always the Wild West. It was always chaotic. But the English system and temperament and society did not tolerate such a chaotic situation. And therefore, uh, the United Synagogue uh, searched for a chief rabbi. It's interesting, there were two uh, candidates, none of them English both of them from Germany. One was the, the chief rabbi, Nathan Adler. Now, Adler was a great Talmud Chochem, great rabbinic scholar, and he wrote a uh, famous commentary uh, to the Bible and to its commentators called Nesino Laguerre. And he was a very well-respected, well-known rabbinic figure. He certainly gave stature to the office. The other candidate, interestingly enough, was Samson Raphael Hirsch, who uh, was not elected. And, you know, one of the great ifs, what ifs, is what would the English Jewry look like today had Hirsch been elected the chief rabbi instead of Adler. But Adler uh, immediately embarked on making it English, uh, English translation of 
the prayer book said it was going to be an authorized version that was going to be the sitter that was going to be used not was traditional but it was translated into English uh, the Chumash was translated into English etc etc things which in Eastern Europe could not happen there was no one that was translating the sitter into Polish or Lithuania and uh, Anglo Jewry therefore uh, became uh, attempted to become homogenized in England and the uh, office and institution of the chief rabbi certainly lent itself to doing so the chief rabbi since then has undergone uh, uh, many changes the world changes but basically uh, it remains a uh, position of influence and to a certain extent a position of whatever you want to make of it how do you want to treat it uh, but as an institution that exists and uh, only lately are the uh, chief rabbis English born themselves most of them came from uh, my Hertz came from the United States uh, the other ones were from Germany but that lent a flavor to uh, Anglo Jewry and to what it was there's a flood of immigrants that come to England the population goes from less than 5,000 at the beginning of the century the end of the century there's over a quarter of a million Uh, that brings about a reaction so there were uh, anti-Jewish riots in England Uh, whether we can call them pogroms or not but they were on that scale especially if uh, Jewish merchants or Jewish workmen uh, replaced uh, the British in the undergoing changes in British economic society. And uh, because of that, for instance, uh, Theodore Herzl when he uh, proposed that Jews uh, make a state here in the land of Israel so he testified before a parliamentary committee in the British Parliament and the main uh, thrust of his testimony was that England should support it because otherwise they'll come to England and that resonated so that you had uh, England offering Uganda as a Jewish state uh, England uh, favoring Zionism because of the internal pressure so it wasn't because Jews were influential that only came later it was because there were too many Jews and the flood of Jews itself uh, created problems 
the Jews, whatever, were uh, able to uh, uh, rise to high positions or even to uh, professorships. Or it was uh, it was not till the 20th century, and even later in the 20th century, uh, that all those doors, so to speak, were open. But uh, the Jews were inspired by the fact that uh, England was an open society and that there was a chance for them that did not exist in Eastern Europe and they wanted to take advantage of it. There were a lot of unscrupulous uh, boat captains that he took uh, Jews on board uh, in Germany and in uh, northern Poland, etc. And they said they're taking them to America. And they let them off in England or in Ireland. But wherever the Jews landed, they felt they were better off than where they had come from, even if it was not their intended goal. And again, uh, uh, after Disraeli was no longer prime minister, as often happens, uh, he grew in stature. He was called Lord Beaconsfield. And uh, the press, which had treated him badly and had mocked him and had pointed out his Jewishness, and when Disraeli originally got up in Parliament to speak, he was heckled by people that would holler, old clothes for sale. What are you peddling today? But uh, after he had uh, been prime minister, etc., uh, all of that waned, and he became a uh, heroic figure. Now, the Jews didn't know how to deal with him, because on one hand, he was so Jewish, and he accomplished a lot for the Jewish people. On the other hand, he was an apostate. And someone that was a, that had done uh, what Jews had always avoided doing, converting. And that remained, uh, till today, an issue. I know there's a street here called Israeli. And uh, there were great protests here in Jerusalem when the uh, board that decides on the names of the streets uh, did so. And their answer was they put them in the streets with the non-Jews, with Wedgwood and the other ones who are not Jewish. But uh, he, posed, uh, he posed a dilemma that faced uh, a certain type of Jew living in England in Victorian times and the fact that there was tolerance etc but if you really wanted to get ahead you could not do so unless you were going to convert to Christianity and uh, that was a very serious issue now England became the empire of the world under Victoria the Israeli helped uh, it took over India England uh, the sun never set on the British flag 
And here you had a small island that controlled a quarter of the world. And that taxed great resources. Contrary to belief, empire is very expensive. Most empires collapse because they can't finance it anymore. It's too big, too much. Can't control it. Uh, we've seen that in our time, too. Uh, all of the empires that have collapsed, you know, they can't do it anymore. So they were heavily dependent uh, on uh, the Rothschild Bank and on the sale of bonds and on the British Navy. England decided that the only way they could rule the empire didn't have armies big enough. The British army was a professional army, but it was small. But the navy, the navy, Britannia rules the waves. And because England saw itself as the major naval power in the world, it could maintain its empire. In maintaining its empire, it also allowed Jews a place to go. Because if you could go to England, suddenly you can go to South Africa. Or you can go to Australia. Or you can go to Hong Kong. Which Jews did. And uh, it was mainly uh, because of the fact that England controlled the Cape Colonies that the Lithuanian Jews started to come to South Africa. Later in the 20th century, when the Boer War happened and England took over all of South Africa, so then that was the catalyst for Jews to come. Because they felt that under the British Empire, they were to be treated with the ability to advance in the world. Australia, which began as a British penal colony so the joke that they tell I don't think it's true but they say that uh, on the first penal ships so they emptied the jails to send convicts to Australia so there were nine Jews so the Jews sent back a note and the next shipment send us another convict so that we would be able to have a quorum and be able to have a minion there's no question that uh, Jews emigrated to British colonies in numbers that they did not do, for instance, to French colonies or to German colonies. They did so because of the example of England and because of how England developed. Now, the Eastern European Jews that came to England in the, in the 1800s so there were great uh, scholars, great Talmud HaChomim that came. But they found it hard to adjust. It was, the same thing was true in America. They found it very hard to do, somehow adjust amongst themselves. Uh, and uh, they also were visited regularly by... Uh, rabbis and money collectors from Eastern Europe because uh, 
as poor as the Jews were in England, they were better off than the Jews were in Lithuania. And since everybody had a relative, or he had somebody that he knew that had emigrated, so therefore uh, people had lists of names of people, of addresses in London, etc. And they came to collect money. And uh, this is the history of the Jewish people generally, is that the money collectors were to cross fertilization of societies and of bringing Torah to places that didn't have it before. So, for instance, in the late 1800s, the great Rabbi Eliezer Gordon, who was a disciple of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and the founder of the great yeshiva at Tells in Lithuania, and he was the head of the yeshiva, he was the rabbi in Tells, came to London to collect money. And uh, unfortunately he took ill, and he died in London, and he's buried in London. But it had a profound effect on London Jewry. Uh, I heard it from a number of rabbis who said they heard it from their teachers, that there was like a tremendous guilt feeling that they had not done enough for him, that they really didn't appreciate it. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, English Jewry generally was more open to accepting immigrants from Eastern Europe than, let us say, American Jewry, which was run by the Reform, uh, that did not, in the 1870s or 1880s, want any Jews from Eastern Europe to come and put many an obstacle in the way of any immigration to America. Whereas that did not happen in uh, London. There's a famous legend, I don't, I heard it, that the uh, rabbi who eulogized Rabbi Gordon, he passed away uh, in the uh, portion of the Torah where uh, Yosef appeals to Paro to be freed. So Yosef said, Kigunav Gunavti merits Ivrim. I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, really. I didn't come here willingly. Vagampolo Asisi Muma. And here I didn't do anything. I'm not guilty of any crime. Vyashov Samuni Babor and they put me into jail for no reason. That's what Yosef said to Para. So the uh, Safdon, the uh, man who eulogized Rabbi Gordon, said, Kigunav Gunavti Meretz Rabbi Gordon came from the land of the Jews, from Eastern Europe. And he didn't want to come. He didn't want to come to uh, take a tour of London. He came because of financial duress. He had to support the yeshiva. 
But he didn't do much here. People didn't treat him right. They didn't. Uh, they didn't contribute. So he said, And now they put me in the pit. Now I'm buried here. I'm told that that has been made a uh, great impact on London Jewry. And so that the, uh, the connection between Eastern Europe and London Jewry was much stronger in the end of the 1800s than, let us say, the connection was between Eastern Europe and the Jewish immigrants in the United States. Of course, we're talking about a much smaller community, but nevertheless, that was a sizable community. Uh, there also was pressure to uh, hire Jews to make a Jewish chair, so to speak, in colleges in England. And Jews began to occupy higher positions in higher education. After a period of time, uh, Jews would become uh, almost... Uh, overrepresented in the uh, fields of education and the arts because Jews were always that way and uh, that had a profound effect on the Jewish life and general life in England as well so the Victorian era, the 1800s is really what set up what happened in the 1900s and we could say to a great extent, if it were not for Disraeli or Rabbi Adler or Montefiore or Nathan Mayer Rothschild, there never would have been a Balfour Declaration. Because the mood of England would not have been attuned to it. We would not have seen it in that fashion. And uh, the... Uh, the fact that uh, uh, the Jews had uh, achieved in England under uh, Queen Victoria what they had not achieved in any other country in Europe. Even in Germany, they hadn't achieved to that extent. So that played a great role in how Jews in England viewed themselves and how the Jewish world generally viewed England. And even though in the 20th century, uh, there would be uh, great disputes and even violence. And England would not fulfill the role that it could have fulfilled. But nevertheless, it remained a bulwark for the Jewish people. And therefore, uh, Anglo Jewry saw itself as being important and vital and creative. And even though it's much smaller today, it still sees itself in that light and has this type of a role to play in Jewish life. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. J.M. in the A.M. Victorian England is the uh, name of the lecture from the uh, Jewish Societies in Retrospect. Um, Jewish Societies in Retrospect lecture series by Rabbi Beryl Wine. I'll get it straight. Don't worry. I'll get it straight. <laughs> And 
Uh, there's a lot going on, folks. A lot going on. And information about Rabbi Wine's lectures. And the next one, by the way, we're going to be doing the 7 o'clock hours about the United States. Rabbi Wine is brilliant when it comes to all these lectures. When it comes to American Jewish history, he is ultra brilliant. Um, so we'll do all of that coming up here at JM and the AM. Um, so that'll be, again, from the series Jewish Societies in Retrospect. And that one will officially be called Jews in the United States. Here at JM and the AM. Um, couple of things. First of all, happy birthday to Yaakov Arbach. Happy birthday, Yaakov, from all of us here at JM and the AM. Yeah, we knew today was a big day. We didn't realize it's that big of a day. So happy birthday to listener Yaakov Arbach from all of us here at JM and the AM. And I'm told his uh, secular birthday is coming up in August. So we'll have to remember that as well. Uh, to wish him a happy birthday when that uh, when that rolls around. Um, Yom NCSY is Monday night. Literally, we uh, we get out of our nine days format on at some point Monday. I guess Monday midday, right? And Monday night is Yom NCSY. Our Tuesday morning broadcast will be from Yom NCSY in Israel. Uh, as is our tradition, those of you out there who would like to send messages to us to include in Tuesday's show, you may know somebody who's, uh, oh, I don't know, a participant in NCSY's summer programs. Maybe somebody who uh, is a um, camper or staff member in the NCSY summer programs, and you may want to uh, include a little message that we will include in our show, which will air Tuesday morning between 6 and 9. Uh, all you got to do is, um, uh, here it is, looking for, looking for this all over the place. I just found it. All you got to do is um, is send a message to us that you would like included in our Yom NCSY show on Tuesday morning. Nahum at NahumSiegel.com. Again, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com. Just make sure to put in the subject line, Yom NCSY. Simple as that. Make sure to put in the subject line, Yom NCSY. And, um, and that's that. And we'll be broadcasting, please God, Tuesday morning. Obviously, with the actual show being done Monday night uh, from Yom NCSY in Israel. And we are very much looking forward to it, to say the least. Uh, then the bulk of the week will be from uh, uh, from Israel. A lot of a lot of our programming with NCSY, including uh, NCSY Kolel, uh, will, of course, be at the Inbal Hotel. We'll be broadcasting from there, and we will be... Um, including a whole bunch of great organizations and uh, and outfits that we're going to be featuring and, and guests that we're going to be featuring uh, from the Inbal, including, right, including not just the Inbal people. And we are looking forward to uh, Roni Timzit being with us uh, during our, during our Inbal uh, program. He is the general manager there at the hotel, and they've been doing quite a job, to say the least. 
Uh, but in addition, we hope to have other guests as well. Very interesting guests coming up. So that'll be Sunday. Uh, well, no, no. Sunday is Tisha B'Av. That'll be Monday night, which means on Monday itself will be our encore presentation of the 10th of Av, Stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach. Tuesday, Yom NCSY. Wednesday from the Inbal. Thursday from uh, NCSY Kolel. And then Friday morning, the plan is to be back here in studio. Friday morning next week, the plan is to be back here in studio. Please, God, we will be. And uh, that is what we intend to do as we have a very, very, very busy week. <laughs> Thank God. A very, very busy week, to say the least. Galait Sal is in the background. Do our news from Israel coming up? They're talking about uh, they're talking about Erev Tisha B'Av. Unbelievable. They actually air Eicha Saturday night in Israel on the radio. Pretty unbelievable, I must say. Thursday morning, JM and the AM, and this is July 15th, the 6th of Menachem Av. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world. The web Menachem Segal, like I'm the Menachem Segal Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN. News from Israel next. בעקבות כישלון הקואליציה בהצבעות בכנסת, גם הבוקר, צפויים חלק מחבריה לדרוש שינויים במבנה הנהלתה. נדווח כתב התחום הפוליטי יובל סגב. גורמים בקואליציה ובממשלה הביעו ביקורת על הקושי בניהול ההצבעות האחרונות וטענו לחוסר תיאום והיעדר ניסיון בהנהלת הקואליציה. מספר חברי כנסת טענו כי בנט ולפיד צריכים להתחיל לשים לב לנעשה בכנסת ולמנות מבוגר אחראי ניטרלי שיוכל לתכלל את העבודה, כך כלשונם. גורמים בימינה מסרו כי הם מאמינים בדרכה של יושבת ראש הקואליציה סילמן וכי היא מקבלת גיבוי ותמיכה על ניהול הקואליציה יחד עם שותפיה. וחברת הכנסת שרן השכל מתקווה חדשה שולחת איתות לחברי הקואליציה מרע"מ שמערימים קשיים על העברת החוק שלה לאי הפללת משתמשי קנאביס ואומרת עלולים לשלם על כך מחיר. היא דיברה ביומן הצהריים עם יניר קוזין. אם רע"מ יחליטו להצביע נגד, תהיה לזה כמובן משמעות קואליציונית. אנחנו נדון בזה בעוד שבועיים, אם תהיה בכלל הצבעה כזאת. כלומר, דברים שכתובים בהסכמים הקואליציוניים שלהם, יכול להיות שהם לא ימומשו בינתיים. הכל יכול להיות, הכל פתוח. מתרחבת שביתת עובדי המשק והמעבדות בבתי החולים הממשלתיים. עובדי המעבדות ומקצועות הבריאות ישבתו ביום ראשון במשך ארבע שעות. כתבנו לענייני בריאות, שי פרידמן. כאות הזדהות עם עובדי המנהל והמשק המוכרים על תנאי העסקתם, הודיעה ההסתדרות כי ביום ראשון, בין השעות שמונה לשתים עשרה בבוקר, ישבתו עובדי המעבדות לצד קלינאי התקשורת, הדיאטנים והפיזיותרפיסטים. מוקדם יותר הודיעו עובדי תחנות הפיקוח על מזון מיובא בנמלים, כי הצטרפו גם הם לשביתה שנכנסה היום ליומה השלישי. עד כה לא חודש המשא ומתן בין העובדים לאוצר. נמשך השיא במספר המשרות הפנויות במשק. כתבנו לענייני כלכלה, ניתאי ענבי, עם נתוני הלשכה המרכזית לסטטיסטיקה. ביוני היו 128 אלף משרות פנויות במשק, שיא מאז תחילת המדידות ב-2009. בענף האירוח והאוכל חלה העלייה החדה ביותר, עם 28 אלף משרות, וחסרים עוד אלפי אנשי מכירות, מהנדסים, כולל מפתחי הייטק, עובדי בנייה, אבטחה ונהגים. בסוף יוני הפסיקה הממשלה לתת דמי אבטלה לבני 45 ומטה, במטרה לצמצם את הביקוש לעובדים במשק. 
חרף המלצת ראש הממשלה בנט לישראלים לא לטוס לחו"ל, 37 אלף נוסעים עוברים היום בנתב"ג ביותר מ-300 טיסות. בנט בנאום שלו המליץ וישראלים לא מקשיבים להנחיות, אז להמלצות הם בטוח לא יקשיבו. אנחנו עברנו שנה לא פשוטה, אז עכשיו אנחנו רוצות ללכת ליהנות, לשמור על הנחיות מתאימות. אנחנו צריכות החופשה הזאת, עבדתי מאוד קשה, עוד מעט אני מתגייסת, שמה מסכה, עשיתי בדיקת קורונה. כתבתנו עינב קרנר מוסרת שבעקבות קיצור מספר ימי הבידוד לשבעה חל זינוק של יותר מ-25% בהיקף ההזמנות של משפחות לחופשות בחו"ל. ידידות מוגבלת בעלי ביתר ירושלים, משה חוגג, הודיע על ביטול משחק הידידות מול ברצלונה בשל סירוב ברצלונה לשחק בבירה. לסירוב קדמו מסעות שכנוע. שר התרבות והספורט חילי טרופר תקף אצל בוני גינזבורג ועידן קבלר בעושים ספורט את יושב ראש בל"ד, חבר הכנסת סמי אבו שחאדה. חבל לי שאנשים מהרשימה המשותפת פעלו נגד האינטרס של מדינת ישראל. ואני חושב שזה שאנחנו מתעקשים שמדינת ישראל בירתה ירושלים ולא מתכוונים למצמץ בעניין הזה, זה נכון בכל מימד, אבל אני מכבד את משה חוגג ומתעצב שזה יתפטר. מזג האוויר רותח. לפנינו כמה ימים של עומס חום קיצוני. משרד הבריאות מזהיר את כולם מפני חשיפה לשמש. אלה החדשות שעורך עידו דוד כהן. There's a rumor that Hadas Emuna Adler, there's a rumor that Hadas Emuna Adler is listening to us this morning in Petah Tikva. If that's true, maybe she'll write on our app some type of greeting from Petah Tikva, Israel. Wouldn't that be amazing? So I'm going to wish a very happy good afternoon to Hadas Emuna Adler from all of us here at JM in the AM. Uh, we're in Israel next week, please God. Yom NCSY, we are broadcasting from there Monday night, which means you'll hear that show Tuesday morning. Um, Bezrat Hashem, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from Israel, Friday back here in studio. Monday we'll present our uh, stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach, which is our 10th of Av tradition, this coming Monday morning. And, um, and that's how things are going to roll. If you would like to include in our show on Tuesday morning a message for the NCS wires, staff, campers, uh, administration, whatever the case may be, uh, no problem. Send it to Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, Nahum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at NahumSiegel, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com, and make sure to put into the uh, subject line, Yom NCSY, Yom NCSY. Rabbi Merrill Wine's lecture in the series entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect is about the United States of America. It's next at JM in the AM. This entire lecture series was dedicated to Nishmas Ilio ben Yehuda, who passed away the 27th of Tevis, 5776. It's a memory of Edwin Jacob Berkowitz. I thank the Berkowitz family for their kindness. The Jewish experience in the United States of America is different than any of the 
other societies that we have discussed. Uh, There are a number of reasons for it, but the main reason for it is that this was the first time that Jews were in a country that did not have an official religion. The Jews in the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, Islam was the official religion. In Europe, all of the countries had Christianity as the religion. And the religion and the state were always connected somehow. Even after the French Revolution, when the uh, state uh, divorced itself from the Catholic Church, nevertheless, uh, a sizable part of the population, if not even the majority, remained Roman Catholic, and the Church had and has a great deal of influence, political and otherwise. And you see, uh, in our time, all over Europe, there are political parties called the Christian Democratic Party. In the United States, no such thing ever existed. So that was one major difference, is that, as we will point out, uh, There was plenty of anti-Semitism in the United States, but there was no officially established religion. The second difference was that the United States basically was a classless society. There were very wealthy people, there were aristocratic people, but the common person felt Uh, that uh, one could rise to almost any heights uh, by the dint of one's efforts or by economic luck or by all sorts of methods. Now, the Jews that fled Europe, there were three major influxes of Eastern European Jews. The Sephardic Jews came to America in colonial times but they were very small in number maybe a thousand Jews at the time of George Washington of a population of one and a half to two million people and they were all Sephardim but early on Jews rose to rank in the United States in the war of 1812 There was a Jewish admiral, Uriah Levy, who was an admiral in the United States Navy and won a battle against the British at Lake Champlain. And uh, there always were Jews, again, Sephardic Jews, uh, that uh, were... uh, influential and wealthy, but there was a very small Jewish congregation in the United States. That began to change in the 1840s. The 1840s in Europe was a time of revolution, great turbulence, great uncertainty. And there were wars. Uh, So uh, Europeans began to emigrate to the United States. Most of the immigrants were from England and Ireland. 
There was a potato famine in Ireland. People were running away from Europe. And uh, many of those that ran were Germans and non-Jewish Germans. And they settled mainly in uh, the Ohio Valley, in Cincinnati and in that area. And that was in the, uh, the Americans called it the Rhineland. Jews from Germany also began to come in the 1840s. These Jews were uh, reformed Jews, completely non-observant, and uh, they made a great success of themselves here. There's a famous uh, book called Our Crowd by Stephen Birmingham, which details the German Jews that came in the 1840s. And they went into finance. They were the first Jews to come on Wall Street. They made brokerage houses. Kuhn, Loeb. It's interesting, the Rothschilds never invested in the United States, which probably was to their detriment. They were merchants. They made uh, great department stores, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Gimbel's. They made a great success of themselves, financially. And they established uh, the infrastructure for American Jewry. And they therefore had as their goal to assimilate Jews as rapidly as possible into American society. And since they were reform, so uh, that meant that uh, you didn't have to convert in America, as for instance you had to do in Germany, if you wanted to get ahead. But it meant that there was no vestige of Jewish tradition present here. In the Civil War in the 1860s, the Jews fought on both sides of the war. The Secretary of State of the Confederacy was Judah P. Benjamin, who was a Smartic Jew. And there were many Jews that owned plantations in the South, and there were also Jews that were in the slave trade. There were Jews on the North. probably more in the north than in the south, the southern armies. Uh, The first instance of open discrimination against Jews we find in the Civil War by General Ulysses Grant. In the Civil War, uh, there were peddlers that came into the camps of the armies to sell the soldiers either food or utensils or clothing or trinkets. And uh, he expelled, and he said it specifically, all Jewish peddlers. They could not come into the Union lines. 
uh, Lincoln uh, countermanded the order. He said you could not discriminate in that way. Either you don't let any peddlers in or you let all the peddlers in. But Grant was not an anti-Semite. That was just the way it was. And we'll have later that when Grant became president of the United States, he appointed the first Jewish member of the cabinet in America, Oscar Strauss. And he had many Jewish friends uh, who helped him in his financial, he was constantly in financial difficulty. In the late 1860s, a man came to the United States from Germany. His name was Isaac Mayer Wise. Now, uh, he was a radical reformist who was so radical that he was pretty much kicked out of Germany. But he came to the United States, and he was a very charismatic person, talented, an orator, a writer, an organizer, and he rapidly rose to become the head of the reform movement in the United States. He founded the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, where his base was, because that's where the Germans lived. And uh, he, uh, in 1872, uh, created what was called the Pittsburgh Platform. At a convention, he created the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, which is the uh, synagogue branch of the Reform Movement. And he created Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, which was the rabbinic training school for reform. And he uh, had a convention in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the Pittsburgh platform, which was adopted, was extreme reform. No Hebrew in the prayer book, no mention of Zion and Jerusalem. Uh, We are American citizens. Uh, No observance of any ritual whatsoever. We are interested only in the charitable values of Judaism. And that became the basic infrastructure of Jewish America. He created uh, the institution of federated charities that the Jewish community would operate charities and raise money from the Jewish community, but that the charities were, so to speak, non-denominational and uh, were not uh, particularly Jewish at all. And that was a long process of the federations, a hundred-year process, uh, till the federations became a little more Jewish, as they are in our time. So you had uh, the Sephardic Jews here, and you had the German Jews. Uh, There were few, if any, Eastern European Jews here, and therefore there were few, if any, Orthodox Jews in the country. In the 1870s, America expanded westward to take the whole continent, 
kill out the Indians and take their land. And America was the land of opportunity. If you came and you went west, you could get, uh, what did they say, 40 acres and a mule. People who never owned anything in Europe and had no chance of owning anything in Europe began to emigrate to the United States in vast numbers. So, for instance, almost half of southern Italy moved to the United States. 40% of the Irish population moved to the United States. And because of the persecution of Jews under the Tsar in Eastern Europe, a vast, large Jewish emigration began. It was facilitated by a shipping company owned by a Jew, Balin, who was a German Jew. It was called the Hamburg-America Line. So you had to get to Hamburg in Germany, and then you could get on the ship. No one needed a passport. No one needed a visa. You're talking about a different time completely. And you're talking about the fact that two and a half million Eastern European Jews picked up and over 40 years came to the United States of America. The Eastern European Jews were overwhelmingly observant, though they were in the vast majority ignorant. Ignorant in Judaism as well. Because Judaism in Eastern Europe was a societal religion. It was not a book religion. The average Jew never saw Gomorrah in his life. Jewish women generally were illiterate. Could not read or write. But... The idea of America spread like wildfire. Shalom Aleichem has an essay in which he said the word America alone was magic. And people picked up and left. Especially uh, people who felt they had no hope in Europe. So there was always an upper class, as small as it was, they were not going to come to America. Uh, The scholars also were not going to come to America. But the masses were going to come to America. And they're the ones that came. And they came to an America that uh, was rife with anti-Semitism, a nativist America that was against immigrants. Uh, They came to squalor, terrible privation and poverty. But believe it or not, it still was better than what they left. And therefore, uh, as bad as the Lower East Side was, it was better than living in uh, Warsaw. And uh, this uh, tremendous wave of immigration uh, changed the face of American cities. I mean, New York is a prime example, but all of the cities of the East Coast, all the port cities, Boston, Philadelphia, 
even in the south, Galveston, Texas, because the boat stopped there, San Francisco, and because Chicago was the railroad center of the United States, there was a time when almost every railroad had to pass through Chicago. So there became a very large Jewish community in Chicago, eventually a quarter of a million Jews. Uh, These Jews were Eastern European. They spoke Yiddish. Uh, They had uh, a traditional lifestyle. That generation of immigrants did not assimilate because they did not speak English and uh, they didn't have a chance to. They were very active in the needle trades, in small businesses, but they were destroyed by the fact that America then had a six-day work week, and if you wanted to get a job, uh, only with rare exceptions, could you uh, not work on Saturday. The famous statement was, if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother to come in on Monday. In my time yet, which is a long time ago, I admit, uh, I remember in my father's synagogue on the west side of Chicago, so they had an early minion on Shabbos. Today, the early minion on Shabbos is a uh, refuge for holiness, right? That's the minion God davens at. People say, I looked at Ashkoma minion, right? But in my time, the Ashkoma minion meant that you went to shul, you heard Kriya Torah, you daven Musaf, and then you got on the trolley and you went to work. And I'm talking about a shul that the Ashkoma Minion had 750 people. The second Minion that didn't go to work, or they went to work later, I don't know, also was 750 people. But the destruction of the Sabbath, the fact that it could not be maintained, caused... Uh, the breakdown of the Jewish community almost immediately when coming to America. The uh, American Jew uh, revered education as uh, he or she does today. They all felt that education was the stepping stone uh, to a better life. So the uh, Parents could remain uneducated and not speak English or speak English with a heavy Eastern European accent. But the children were going to be American. And there was the American public school system. And the public school system in the United States then in the late 1800s and until, really until the Second World War, uh, was uh, 
built upon the principle of the melting pot. The melting pot meant that we're going to take every culture, wherever you come from, but we're going to melt it all down and you're going to come out American. Now, American meant a lot of things. American meant uh, Sunday was the day off. American meant Christmas. American meant uh, that uh, things that were anachronistic, strange customs from the old world, had to be discarded. I remember I went to uh, public school till seventh grade, and uh, I had all almost all Irish spinster teachers who really taught us very well because that was the only thing they had in life, and they poured it into us. But uh, we knew every Christmas carol. We knew all the mythologies. We knew everything. Because that was part of having a public school education. So what about Jewish schools? And that's where the American Jewish community really... uh, The Sabbath was the first breakdown. Jewish education was the second. There were afternoon schools. In other words, you got out of public school 3 o'clock... 3.30 was the afternoon Hebrew school. Now, when I grew up, the afternoon Hebrew school was still 3.30 to 7 o'clock. So that was a pretty long day for kids. And the quality of uh, people who taught in those schools was not especially high. And as I look back at it, there was much physical abuse, let alone verbal abuse. It was an unappetizing place. But uh, the rule was that if you wanted to be bar mitzvah, you had to attend the afternoon Hebrew school. So uh, essentially was an education of a 12-year-old. And uh, then they never opened the book again in their lives. There never was anything else uh, that they became uh, aware of. So uh, uh, for most American Jews, the concept of God and of Judaism and of Jewish tradition was that of a 12-year-old, even though they were 40 and 50 years old. But it never grew up with them. And therefore, uh, throughout this time, uh, the Jewish community was already drifting. But there was almost no intermarriage because the non-Jew would not marry a Jew. That was the great barrier to intermarriage in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But uh, once, uh, for instance, uh, presidents of the United States uh, could have Jewish sons-in-law, so then all barriers are removed. When barriers are removed and you have no Jewish education and you're never brought up with the Sabbath or anything else, 
So intermarriage is a natural uh, plague to be expected. In the 1920s, after the First World War, there was a second wave of emigration from Eastern Europe. The communist revolution uh, helped drive it. The anti-Semitism in Poland and Lithuania and Hungary. The only country in Europe that was uh, not anti-Semitic was Czechoslovakia. And uh, the Jews uh, came in great numbers to the United States after the First World War. Again, uh, there was a nativist reaction in the United States. And the Congress in 1924 passed a immigration law that restricted immigration from Central and Southern and Eastern Europe. That meant they couldn't say Jews couldn't come, but they could say, as, uh, as we have a travel ban today, that people from Libya can't come. And the Supreme Court holds that that's legitimate. It's within the power of the United States government. So they said, if you come from Poland, you can't come. They didn't say if you're Jewish. They said, if you come from Poland... There's a quota, 25,000 a year, whatever it was. If you come from Lithuania, you can't come. And uh, this uh, made it increasingly difficult for Jews to come to the United States. Always we were asked, uh, why didn't the Jews leave Europe? Basically because they had nowhere to go. There was no country willing to welcome them. You're talking about moving millions of people. So uh, as a practical matter, uh, that question is really uh, not in place. In the 1920s in the United States, it was called the Roaring Twenties. After the First World War, America withdrew from the world. Didn't want to have any part of the world's problems. Didn't want to be engaged in any more European wars. And uh, it uh, wanted to have a good time, which is uh, probably the largest industry in the United States still today, is having a good time. Very rarely do we achieve that, but we're always trying. The Jews in the United States invented a new industry called film, movies. So that's one of the uh, most remarkable things. Beginning in the early 1900s. We'll get back to Rabbi Wine and the topic of uh, the American, um, well, I mean, the official topic is Jews in the United States, but I was just about to say the the uh, American entree of Jews into the film industry and other industries, which I'll be discussing in just a moment here at the JM in the AM. Rabbi Wine Lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and of course, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonish Masarav, Zebner Vesavalevi, Zechonish Esther Basar Vesavalevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. 
Good morning. We learn in the Talmud Yerushalmi that there were several things that were decreed by the Chachamim, by the great sages, so that we should always remember the Chorban Beis Amikdosh. It should be a reminder that we continuously need to mourn and to miss the Beis Amikdosh. Our Alocha tells us that they were gozer. A person was not allowed to wear the special crown that was made for chasanim, for the groom. That crown was made of various materials. In the later days, it was made out of an olive branch. So, because it says, Nafla ateras roshenu, the crown of our heads has fallen, speaking about the Beis Amikdash, the Talmud tells us, Eluhein ataras chasanim. These were the special crowns that the chasanim used to wear on the day of their wedding. What happened was that all the people would listen. However, there was one, Rebbe Yirmiya, that for whatever reason it was, he did not listen to the Gezerah. He didn't listen to this particular decree of the Chachamim, and he wore the crown. However, when Shmuel heard of this, he said it would have been better for him had he been beheaded and not done this, not worn the crown. And that's what it means, like the mistake that went out, from the mouth of the ruler. What it means is that sometimes the ruler could give a decree. He didn't mean to do it. It was a mistake. But once it came out, they had to follow it. And so too, when Shmuel said this, it was already like a mistake that came out from the mouth of the ruler. On that day, Reb died. The Medrash and Echa Rabbah tells us that from here, we can see the extent to which a person has to appreciate the loss of the Beis Amikdosh. Even wearing the crown of branches on the happiest day of a person's life is not acceptable when there is a minig to remember the Beis Amikdosh. As we all know, that at every chuppah, they put a little bit of ash on the head of the chassan. At every chuppah, the chassan breaks a glass. If I do not remember Yerushalayim at the time of my greatest joy. We understand that each and every day, we remember the Beis HaMikdosh, and we pray that speedily in our days, May we see the arrival of Mashiach in the building of the third and final Beis HaMikdosh. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Thursday. My thanks, Rabbi Goldwasser, of course. Rabbi Wine's lecture on the uh, Jews in the United States. We're going to backtrack a few minutes and get back to the uh, conversation, or I should say the lecture, about Jews in the United States. Uh, it's a Thursday morning broadcast. We're live from our New York City studios this coming Monday. It'll be the stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach. We'll do an encore presentation of one of the well-known Tenth of Av shows. That'll be Monday morning. Tuesday, we're at Yom NCSY. That's right. Monday night, we'll actually be there. And Tuesday, we'll be broadcast, excuse me, broadcasting from Yom NCSY in what will be a really fun middle of the week to get our next season kicked off here at the Nahum Siegel Network. From Israel, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So make sure to uh, 
uh, be tuned in. Obviously, those of you who want to get messages onto our Yom CSY show, if you want to get a message onto our Yom CSY show, all you got to do is send it to nachum at nachumsegel.com. Again, nachum at nachumsegel.com. And to put Yom CSY into the subject line, nachum at nachumsegel.com. Put Yom NCSY into the subject line. Simple as that. Um, and we'll hopefully utilize that message at some point during our program this coming uh, this coming Tuesday morning from Israel. Uh, listener Hadas Emuna uh, says Hatzlacha with the radio show. Thank you, Hadas Emuna in Petach Tikva. Much appreciated. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture on Jews in the United States. You're listening to JM in the AM. That if you wanted to be bar mitzvah, you had to attend the afternoon Hebrew school. So uh, essentially was an education of a 12-year-old. And uh, then they never opened the book again in their lives. There never was anything else uh, that they became uh, aware of. So uh, uh, for most American Jews, the concept of God and of Judaism and of Jewish tradition was that of a 12-year-old, even though they were 40 and 50 years old. But it never grew up with them. And therefore, uh, throughout this time, uh, the Jewish community was already drifting. But there was almost no intermarriage because the non-Jew would not marry a Jew. That was the great barrier to intermarriage in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But uh, once, uh, for instance, uh, presidents of the United States uh, could have Jewish sons-in-law, so then all barriers are removed. When barriers are removed and you have no Jewish education, and you have, you're never brought up with the Sabbath or anything else. So intermarriage is a natural uh, plague to be expected. In the 1920s, after the First World War, there was a second wave of emigration from Eastern Europe. The communist revolution uh, helped drive it. The anti-Semitism in Poland and Lithuania and Hungary the only country in Europe that was uh, not anti-Semitic was Czechoslovakia. And uh, the Jews uh, came in great numbers to the United States after the First World War. Again, uh, there was a nativist reaction in the United States. And the Congress in 1924 passed a immigration law that restricted immigration from Central and Southern and Eastern Europe. That meant they couldn't say Jews couldn't come, but they could say, as, uh, as we have a travel ban today, that people from Libya can't come. And the Supreme Court holds that that's legitimate within the power of the United States government. So they said, if you come from Poland, you can't come. They didn't say if you're Jewish, 
They said, if you come from Poland, there's a quota. 25,000 a year, whatever it was. If you come from Lithuania, you can't come. And uh, this uh, made it increasingly difficult for Jews to come to the United States. Always we were asked, uh, why didn't the Jews leave Europe? Basically because they had nowhere to go. There was no country willing to welcome them. You're talking about moving millions of people. So uh, as a practical matter, uh, that question is really uh, not in place. In the 1920s in the United States, it was called the Roaring Twenties. After the First World War, America withdrew from the world. Didn't want to have any part of the world's problems. Didn't want to be engaged in any more European wars. And uh, it uh, wanted to have a good time, which is uh, probably the largest industry in the United States still today, is having a good time. Very rarely do we achieve that, but we're always trying. The Jews in the United States invented a new industry called film, movies. So that's one of the uh, most remarkable things. Beginning in the early 1900s, there were little uh, places called Nickelodeons. Basically, you put in a nickel and it showed you for two minutes something. But the film industry developed, and it was developed by Eastern and Central European Jews. At first, uh, it was in New York. Then they moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey, which for 10 years was the film capital of the world. And then they decided to get out of the East Coast completely, and they moved to California to Los Angeles, to Hollywood, because California was always, uh, so to speak, the escapist place. The weather was different, the fruit was different, it was exotic. H.L. Mencken, who was a uh, great uh, satirist uh, in America, said that uh, God uh, stood America on end and everything that was loose fell to California. <laughs> the Jews created Hollywood. And they created it because they wanted to create an American image as they imagined America should be. And... Uh, the uh, films that were produced all reflected this dream of an ideal America. Now, for instance, the first sound movie, full-length sound movie, in 1928, was called The Jazz Singer. And uh, it starred uh, Al Jolson, who was a Jew, 
Not only he was a Jew, he was a Chazan at one time. He was famous on vaudeville for uh, singing in blackface, which then was acceptable. Today it would be uh, unimaginable. And the theme of the movie was that his parents are old-fashioned Eastern European Jews. His father, in fact, is the cantor in the synagogue. But he becomes a singer, and he falls in love with a non-Jewish woman. They marry. The father won't accept her. The mother is softer. But she is the greatest paragon of virtue ever. And the climax of the movie is that the father is too sick to recite the Kol Nidre prayers. So the son, Al Jolson, comes and performs the Kol Nidre prayer. And Mary is sitting next to his mother in the women's gallery. Now the message of the movie was clear. The message of the movie is that this is the way it's supposed to be. And the uh, influence of Hollywood uh, cannot be underestimated at all. It It still remains today. It's an enormous propaganda tool. Because you saw it on the screen. And Jews were inveterate moviegoers. My mother used to take me to the movie every Sunday. Cost a nickel. I saw all the cowboy movies and everything. Jews always went to the movies. So that had an enormous influence on American Jewish life. And in fact, later, uh, the Jews invented Christmas. Because all the movies about Christmas were made by Jews. Irving Berlin wrote the music for it. And uh, so they created Christmas in their image of what they thought it should be. And that's why uh, the churches and others objected greatly. They said, you're taking the Christ out of Christmas. But that's what happened. And because of the power of the movies, that is American culture. That's the way it is. Another point in the 1920s. In 1896, uh, an Orthodox Sephardic rabbi in New York founded a school to train American rabbis for the American rabbinate. He called it the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. The institution uh, floundered. And it was bankrupt. It was about to close. In the early 1900s, there was a Jewish financier by the name of Jacob D. Schiff, who was a very powerful man on Wall Street, very wealthy man. 
And he took an interest in the seminary. And he was determined that such an institution was necessary for American Jewry. Because he said the old-fashioned rabbis that come over from Eastern Europe uh, cannot deal with the youth. They cannot deal with American life. Most of them can't speak English. They don't give up their old ways. They dress differently. They look differently. We have to have... And that's what the Jewish Theological Seminary was founded upon. And they hired as its chancellor a famous scholar by the name of Solomon Schechter. Now Schechter had been the expert uh, on the Cairo Geniza. And and he was uh, uh, financed by... uh, British Protestants and Cambridge University and he uh, did a great deal of great scholarship and he was a, a great scholar but he already uh, denied the validity of the Torah as a holy book and he already had a vision that uh, modern America would have to look different than the shtetl in Eastern Europe. And uh, with that, Schechter eventually developed uh, what grew into the conservative movement in the United States. Now, they were never going to be as radical as reform. And uh, they called themselves conservative because they were conserving Judaism. In other words, they were taking the traditions and the obligations and keeping them, but they were going to put them in a more modern dress and make it more appealing to the American Jewish public. At the onset, it was very hard to tell the difference between the Orthodox and between the conservative. The conservative used the orthodox Siddur. They uh, demanded uh, observance of the Sabbath. They demanded a kosher home. And many of the children of leading orthodox rabbis became the vanguard of the conservative movement. In the 1920s, it grew. In the 1930s, it expanded even more. By 1950, what happened was that in many of the cities in America, there were great demographic changes. The neighborhoods changed. The Jewish neighborhood went under completely. Jews moved to the suburbs. When that happened, when the synagogue was rebuilt, it was no longer rebuilt as an orthodox synagogue. It was rebuilt as a conservative synagogue. The conservative movement was built upon orthodoxy. But because of its nature, it could not maintain itself. In 1948, uh, because of the movement to the suburbs, so uh, when you move to the suburbs, uh, 
It wasn't like uh, apartment buildings. I mean, uh, I grew up in Chicago on the west side in four, six blocks. Everybody was there. Big blocks of apartment buildings. Here you had single homes. People wanted land. So uh, you you were uh, eight, ten miles away from the synagogue. How are you going to get there? So the conservative movement, uh, after much inner struggle, permitted driving to the synagogue on Shabbos, on the Sabbath. They uh, issued a uh, halachic response justifying it. What they failed to reckon with is that people said to themselves, listen, if I can drive to the synagogue, I can drive to the golf course. Driving is driving. And to a certain extent, uh, they shot themselves in the foot. But by 1950, they were the growing future of Jewish America. The 1950 yearbook of the American Jewish Congress or the American Jewish Committee, one of them, uh, said that orthodoxy will disappear in the next 20 years and that the future of American Jewry is in the conservative movement. And the truth of the matter is we believed it. The orthodox believed it. We didn't think there was much hope because the whole thing fell apart in front of our eyes. There were 42 Orthodox synagogues on the old west side of Chicago. Only six survived. Nobody wanted an Orthodox rabbi that couldn't speak English. Now, there were a number of Orthodox rabbinical institutions. There was uh, Reitz, Yeshiva University. Then it was Yeshiva College. Uh, there was uh, Torah Madas in New York. To a smaller extent, there was Chaim Berlin. And there was the Hebrew Theological College in Chicago. But that was the ball game. And many of these uh, institutions had their students uh, desert them and attend the seminary uh, to become a conservative rabbi because they believed that that was the way of the future. That was the only way it was going to work. The 1930s was the Depression. The Depression was a terrible experience for everyone. In our time of affluence, we cannot imagine what people went through. And uh, nobody ate uh, meat meals every night of the week. I was raised on peanut butter and jelly, which I still love. (laughs) And uh, in the Depression, people looked for scapegoats. And there was a tremendous wave of anti-Semitism in America in the 1920s and 1930s. There was the Ku Klux Klan, anti-Negro, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish. Jews were lynched. 
in the south. When Hitler came to power in the 1930s, so there was a great section of German-American citizens who backed him. There was the German-American Bund, run by a man named Fritz Kuhn. I remember the rallies they had in Chicago. I was a small child, but um, I saw how frightened my parents were. They would march in the streets. They had rallies in the Chicago Stadium, 18, 20,000 people. You go Ohio. Jews had a very low profile. You didn't raise your head. And therefore, uh, uh, the, that mentality unfortunately carried over during the time of the Holocaust. Jews were bewitched by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was God. Uh, that's when the Jews became uh, the, and the overwhelming majority voters for the Democratic Party. And uh, Roosevelt had Jewish advisors, Samuel Rosenman, Stephen Wise, Henry Morgenthau, and there were Jewish Supreme Court justices, Brandeis, Cardozo, Frankfurter, but all of these Jews uh, were uh, assimilationist. Frankfurter was married out of the faith. They all believed that the future lay in not making waves. You have a famous incident that's recorded in many books regarding the Holocaust that the leader of the Polish underground in Warsaw escaped in 1942 and made his way to England and Churchill sent him on to America to see Roosevelt and he said I'm going to tell them what's going on and Roosevelt refused to see him but he got an appointment with Frankfurter now Frankfurter they felt was close to Roosevelt if he could convince Frankfurter, he would get the message to Roosevelt. So this uh, Polish patriot uh, described what was happening. The roundups, the shootings, the ghetto. The Jews are being destroyed in front of our eyes. After he finished... Frankfurter said to him, I don't believe it. So the man who uh, accompanied him said, Mr. Justice, he's telling you what he saw. It's an eyewitness. Uh, it's absolutely true. And Frankfurter said, I didn't say it wasn't true. I just said, I don't believe it. And nothing happened. He never spoke to Roosevelt about it. Uh, the American State Department uh, did everything possible to prevent 
Jewish immigration into the country. Refugee ships were turned away. Famous case of the St. Louis. Many of them ended up in Auschwitz. Nobody uh, came out with a good record. And we know the uh, Allied bombers did not bomb the railroad leading to Auschwitz, even though all the other railroads were destroyed. And uh, the Jewish community felt itself powerless. I think that that's the only word I could use. I remember it. I remember the war. I remember uh, the few uh, who escaped and came. Jews were afraid to talk to them because they were afraid to hear what they were going to say. So nobody talked about it. I know it sounds weird, but uh, it isn't that we didn't know about the Holocaust, but no one spoke about it, with the exception of a few like Peter Bergson and his group, the Orthodox rabbis in America, the Eastern European Orthodox rabbis, made a protest in 1943, uh, and they uh, marched to the Capitol in Washington. No congressman received them. They just massed on the steps, but they got some publicity. And the picture was in the paper. But they were roundly denounced by the establishment Jews who said, we have to win the war. The Jews are a diversion. The Jews somehow will sap uh, war materials, energy, money. First, we're going to win the war. After we win the war, then we'll be able to take care of everything. This attitude began to change when the war ended. First of all, Roosevelt died. There's no doubt in my mind that if Roosevelt would have lived, the state of Israel would never have come into being. But... uh, Harry Truman became the President of the United States. Very unlikely person. The Lord has his messengers. They're never the people that we think. And uh, the uh, death camps were uncovered and the survivors were seen. And the full horror became apparent. At that time, the struggle against Britain in Palestine was going on from 46 to 48. Bitter, bitter struggle. Atrocities, everything, and you, you name it. So then, uh, American Jewry with the exception of a good part of reform. Reform was split. Stephen Wise was a Zionist, but Elmer Berger was against the whole project. The reform movement was split, but the conservative and the orthodox and half the reform 
sought to do penance for what happened during the Holocaust in two ways. One was to try and bring over as many survivors as possible into the United States. Uh, in the war itself, the, uh, the uh, Jewish Welfare Board and the Vada Atzola were able to bring over about 100,000 Jews that were in a camp in northern New York and in southern Canada. And then, uh, by pressure, uh, the Immigration Service issued like 50,000 special entry visas uh, so that some of the displaced persons could come to the United States. But uh, Truman uh, said that England should let them into Palestine. Ernest Bevan famously said, Truman wants them in Palestine because he doesn't want them in Brooklyn. There's a kernel of truth to that. But the uh, struggle of the Jews in Palestine against the British and then later against the Arabs, that became the goal of American Jewry. Later on, uh, freeing Soviet Jewry became the goal of American. All of this was because of the fact that during the Holocaust we were powerless and impotent. After the Second World War, the Orthodox community realized that without a Jewish education, it is doomed. And it created what came to be known as the day school movement, which was, you know, would be a Jewish school that would teach Jewish studies and secular studies as well. The Jews would no longer go to the public school. They would be in a protected environment. They would be able to grow up as Jews. And they would have the benefit of a good education that would enable them to be integrated into American academia and into American society. The success of the day school movement is, again, one of the great miracles of our time. Uh, when my parents uh, took me out of public school to put me in the junior high school that then was being formed, good and fine Jews came to my mother and said, you can't do this to him, you'll make him a cripple. I remember I overheard it. I said to my mother, why will, they, why will I be a cripple? She said, just ignore them. But uh, how many were we? A handful. But that handful built the Jewish community in the United States today. It was wildly successful. And then when uh, the Eastern European refugees came, amongst them great rabbis and Russia yeshiva, they said, we're not going to make the mistake that our predecessors made and say that in America it can't be done and we give up. We're going to rebuild Torah in America. 
and uh, that has also been wildly successful uh, far beyond the dreams of anyone so American Jewry stands at a crossroads now it has no cause to support Israel is they say is good enough without us the Soviet Jews are already out so it has no cause most of American Jewry has no tradition and therefore uh, without a cause and without a tradition doesn't have much of a future but uh, stranger things have happened in the Jewish world and uh, I am uh, mildly optimistic about American Jewry I'm very optimistic about Israel and I think that all of these things will come to play if not in our time in the time of our descendants that we'll really see a strong and vital Jewry uh, throughout the world this concludes this lecture by JM and the AM or a Beryl Wines lectures 1-800-499-WEIN 1-800-499-WEIN RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And uh, this lecture series on uh, Jewish societies in retrospect, this one, Jews in the United States, and um, earlier in the United Kingdom, a very, very interesting uh, lecture. We'll get to the Ottoman Empire and Palestine coming up, and that's how we'll wrap up today and how we'll kick off things uh, tomorrow morning. J.M. in the A.M. Remember, we're at Yom NCSY Monday night, which means Tuesday morning you'll be hearing the full report, a live broadcast for three hours with our friends from the uh, amazing summer NCSY, NCSY summer programs. Uh, It's happening this coming Monday night, which means Tuesday morning you'll hear it between 6 and 9 if you have somebody there with our friends at uh, NCSY. Um... If you have someone in Israel and you'd like to get them a special message to include on the air during our broadcast, uh, it's very simple. You go to uh, com. Actually, all you do is email com and put into the subject line, Yom NCSY. That's it. That's the entire thing. And um, that's all you need to know. All right. So again, Yom NCSY is Monday night. We will be um, broadcasting Tuesday morning from Yom NCSY. And all you have to do is, uh, in order to participate and uh, give us a message to include in that Tuesday morning program, is to email nachum at com. And to um, put in the subject line, Yom NCSY. Simple as that. All right. Baruch Hashem. Looking forward to a very exciting week next week. Unofficial start to our next season. Where better but in Israel? Looking forward to it very, very much. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on um, on um, 
the Ottoman Empire and Palestine is how we're going to wrap things up for this morning's JM and the AM. Uh, it's from his Jewish Societies in Retrospect series, information 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or rabbiwine.com, rabbiwine.com. You're listening to JM and the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns itself uh, with the Jews in Ottoman Palestine before uh, England took over after the First World War. The Ottoman Empire uh, existed for uh, 500 years. When an empire exists for 500 years, and let's say you're living in year 300 of the 500, so you're convinced that it'll be there forever because it was there 300 years before you. There's no reason to think it won't keep on going after you. But history shows that uh, no empire exists forever. And no country's dominance over others exists forever. And that uh, the uh, rise and descent of empires is really the story of history. The Ottoman Empire was founded by a, uh, someone from the Caucasus, a Turk, by the name of Osman in the uh, 13th century. The Europeans changed Osman to Ottoman. I guess they spoke Svartit. <laughs> and that's why it's called the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the goal of the Ottoman Empire was to destroy the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire was the Christian Empire. It was the eastern part of the previous Roman Empire. It had existed from the time of uh, Constantine the Great in about 320 uh, for almost a thousand years. Its capital was Constantinople and in Constantinople, there was a great church called the Church of St. Sophia, built by Constantine. And it was the center of Eastern Christianity, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Slavic or, uh, Orthodox religions, in contradistinction to the Roman Catholics. And... Uh, it was a very powerful empire, and it ruled over Palestine. And it was terribly anti-Jewish, uh, to the extent that uh, the Jewish community in Palestine evaporated under its rule. Uh, when the Ramban came here in 1267, he could not find the 10 Jews in Jerusalem. The Byzantines had uh, benefited from the Crusades. The Crusades had turned the mosques on the Temple Mount into churches. Uh, but the uh, Ottomans, who were Muslims but not Arabs, were determined to crush the Byzantine Empire and restore the entire Middle East to Muslim control. 
and they were fierce, and they were warlike, and they waged war constantly for 100, 150 years against the Byzantines. And finally, they conquered the Byzantines. And they took over Constantinople, renamed it Istanbul, and pushed into Europe. Uh, they uh, conquered all of the Balkans, including the city of Belgrade. They conquered Greece, large parts of Hungary, up to the Romanian border. And, uh, and they were at the gates of Vienna. There the uh, Pope rallied the Christian powers in Europe to stop them. And that was like the high point, the zenith of the Ottoman Empire. And from then on, which were the middle of the 16th century on, the Ottoman Empire began a slow but steady decline. Now the ruler of the Ottoman Empire, they had different rulers. Some of them are very well known to us. For instance, Suleiman the Magnificent. He was a very modest person. But he built the walls of Jerusalem, the walls that exist today. He built them on the uh, foundation of uh, many of the walls that Herod had built at the time of the temple. But he built them now in medieval style, as you can see with the slits for the archers to shoot through, the turrets, the walkways on top of the walls. And he made Jerusalem in his day impregnable because there was no way to destroy those walls. He also, uh, they took back the churches and converted them back into mosques. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Mosque of the Golden Dome, the Mosque of Omar. Now, uh, there were many Jews under Ottoman rule. And uh, the Ottomans were uh, not friendly to the Jews. They had many decrees against the Jews. You couldn't walk on the same sidewalk as a Muslim. You had to wear uh, shoes of two different colors. All sorts of shameful things. But uh, in relative comparison to the treatment of the Jews in Christian Europe, they were very benign. And they had a concept called dhimmi. D-H-I-M-M-I. The Dhimmi concept was that aside from the Muslims, the Koran, which is the true faith, according to them, there are what they call people of the book, which is a phrase that Muhammad used. Jews use it to name themselves, but it's really, the origin is really Muslim, not Jewish. The people of the book that believed in the Bible, so they believed in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
and Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. They also believed that there was a person called Yishmael. Uh, they were the people of the book. And the book was the basis for uh, the Muslim religion in many respects. And therefore, the people of the book uh, were not considered to be infidels per se, which the Christians were, but they were considered to be dimmies. Dimmies mean second or third class citizens who have a right to live in the country, but under Muslim rule and under the decrees and laws of the Muslim rulers. But they are not to be expelled. And uh, basically speaking, uh, for a thousand years, the Jews in this part of the world uh, did not know what a pogrom was. Whereas in Europe, it was an everyday occurrence. The uh, relationship of the Ottoman Empire to the Jews, therefore, was mixed. Uh, in order to be an officer or to have a high position in the court of the sultan, one had to convert to Islam. But many Jews uh, converted only pro forma on the outside, and they remained Jews on the inside, and they held high positions, and uh, the Muslims winked at it. Uh, they were aware that the Jewish converts were uh, mostly insincere, but uh, they put up with it because they needed them. The Jews knew languages, the Jews had relatives in Christian countries, the Jews could uh, do trade with Christian countries, and uh, therefore uh, the Jews were uh, if not welcome, they were certainly not objected to. After the uh, expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, large numbers of Sephardic Jews, Spanish Jews, came to live under the Ottomans. And there were great Jewish communities in Syria in Aleppo and in Damascus. There were great Jewish communities in Egypt, in Old Cairo, Fostat, and in Alexandria. But there was almost no Jewish settlement in the land of Israel, per se. There were a lot of Jews that lived in Turkey, in Adrianople, in Constantinople, in Istanbul, in Beirut, but not here. In the uh, 16th century, you first had Jewish settlement in the land of Israel, especially in Svat and in the Galil, and a small Jewish settlement here in Jerusalem. Now, uh, 
after every tragedy, a major tragedy in the Jewish world, uh, there is a revival of the messianic spirit. Because uh, according to Talmudic sources, the uh, messianic era is always preceded by a uh, time of troubles, time of pain and travail. It's compared to childbirth. And uh, the uh, Jews who settled here in the land of Israel uh, had uh, a messianic fervor. So there was an attempt to renew the Sanhedrin because according to Maimonides, the uh, renewal of uh, a Jewish court system has to precede the Messianic era. So there was a determined effort to renew the Sanhedrin. Now you couldn't renew the Sanhedrin because the ordination for the Sanhedrin, the smicha, had expired for over uh, a millennia, a millennium. And only somebody who had the smicha could give the smicha. So how could you renew the Sanhedrin? So for that, again, Maimonides came to the rescue, and uh, he posited that if the rabbis living in the land of Israel gathered together and decided that one of them was worthy of the smicha, then they could grant him the smicha, and then he in turn would grant the smicha to others. This happened in the 1540s. Rabbi Yaakov Beirav received the smicha, and he gave smicha to others, including Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. But he was opposed by other rabbis in the country, especially the rabbi in Jerusalem. And uh, eventually it became clear that you could not have a Sanhedrin that half the rabbis agreed to and half the rabbis didn't agree to. It would only defeat the purpose. So the idea died. Perhaps that was the idea that inspired Rabbi Yosef Karo to write the Shulchan Aruch. Because if he couldn't have a live Sanhedrin, he could have a book that was the Sanhedrin that decided, so to speak, all matters of Jewish law that were then on the table. In any event, the Messianic fervor uh, burst through completely in the Ottoman Empire a hundred years later when Shabzai Tzvi uh, proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Now Shabzai Tzvi lived, originally he was from Egypt, he lived in uh, the land of Israel. Uh, his uh, assistant and publicist was uh, Noson Oazosi, Nathan of Gaza, and he established himself as the Jewish Messiah and uh, 
approximately a third of the Jewish people believed in him, including many great rabbis. And he held court as though he were the Messiah. People traveled from all over the world to see him. Naturally, there was a fee. No Messiah comes cheap. <laughs> and it, uh, it was the talk of Europe, not only Jewish Europe, but the non-Jewish Europe as well. It's mentioned in all the diplomatic uh, messages of the ambassadors of the time that somehow the Jews have a Messiah in the land of Israel. The Sultan, uh, tired of the game, and he arrested Shabzai Tzvi, and he put him in house arrest in Turkey. But uh, Nathan said, uh, this is only a test for the faithful to see if you really believe in him. And only those who really believe in him will be privileged to witness the redemption. And therefore, uh, he uh, continued to be the Messiah. People still came to see him in, their, in where he was under house arrest. Eventually, the sultan tired of that as well. And he told Shabzai Tzvi, either you publicly uh, convert to Islam or I will behead you. So he publicly converted to Islam. And he became a courtier in the sultan's court. And needless to say, that deflated the Jewish world completely and it has effect until today. So the Jews remained throughout the 1600s, 1700s in these circumstances under Ottoman rule with a very, very limited population in the land of Israel. Beginning in the middle of the 1700s, for some reason, because there's no logic to this, and no logic to anything in Jewish history. Jews started to come to the land of Israel. European Jews, Ashkenazic Jews mainly, but Sephardic Jews as well. They came mainly to observe the commandments that exist here in the land of Israel and to be buried here because according to Jewish tradition, being buried in Israel is a uh, kapora, it's a uh, forgiveness for sins. So Jews came, they didn't come in big numbers, but they came. So for the first time, the Ottoman Empire is faced, since the uh, expulsion of Jews from Spain, so uh, 200 years later, all of a sudden, there's a trickle of Jews that are coming to live in the country. Now, you didn't need a passport then. You didn't need a visa. The borders were open. Whoever wanted to come could come. The country itself was completely desolate. 
had no economy, had no natural resources, had a very small population. The city of Jerusalem probably had a thousand people. And uh, the uh, main other cities, Svat, Tiberias, Hebron, were equally as small. And they were not Jewish. The population there was Arab. And much of it was Bedouin Arab, meaning they were nomads. They didn't uh, settle anywhere. And it was a backwater of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there were places where the Ottoman Empire could collect taxes. Egypt, Syria, because Iraq, because those were places that had an economy. But here where there was no economy, there was no one to collect taxes from. The system of the Ottoman Empire was decentralized rule. In other words, the Sultan was in his palace in Istanbul and he appointed somebody to run Syria and he appointed somebody to run Iraq and somebody to run Egypt and he appointed somebody to run Palestine. Now Palestine was not seen as a good appointment because you couldn't make money on it. There was no way to uh, really become wealthy as the rulers of the other provinces of the Ottoman Empire were able to become wealthy. And therefore, uh, the rulers of Palestine appointed by the Ottomans were, uh, had three qualities to them. They were ignorant, they were cruel, and they were greedy. And uh, that only made the situation in the country worse. Uh, it was corrupt from beginning to end. And it is into this society that Jews started to come, that they began to move to the country. So in the 1700s, Gershon Kitiver, who was the brother-in-law to Baal Shem Tov, came. Uh, other Hasidim came. In the early 1800s, the students of, and disciples of the Gon of Vilna came. Uh, other Chabad came. European Jews, Eastern European Ashkenazic Jews came. Now, the Arabs had only known Smartic Jews. So it's an interesting thing. The Arabs called any foreigner a Frank, which was the name of a French knight who in the Crusades, they were Franks. So the Arabs called the Smartic Jews Franks even though they had nothing to do with France. When the Ashkenazim came, so they took the Arab uh, statement that the Sephardim were Franks. 
And that's the origin of the fact that until today, many sections of the Ashkenazic world call Sephardim Franks. Now, the, the uh, Sultan had allowed the Jews a certain amount of religious autonomy. For instance, Jews were entitled to have their own courts. The chief rabbi, so to speak, of any given country was called the Chacham Bashi. Chacham Bashi meant that he was the Chacham, which is the name, the Sephardic name for a rabbi. And Bashi meant that he was appointed by the Turks and that he had official status. So there was a Chacham Bashi here in the land of Israel who was official. The Ashkenazim came here. They didn't recognize the Chacham Bashi. They did not agree to the Sephardic customs. They wanted to have their own shechita, their own meat. They wanted to impose their own customs. They dressed differently. All of which caused a great internal strife in the small Jewish community that existed here in the 1800s. And uh, a lot of what goes on today between, let's say, uh, Shas and the uh, other religious parties is a carryover from the internal divisions that occurred in the 1800s. The Ashkenazim petitioned to have their own shrita, and since it was all corrupt, so it was only a question of paying off. And so they eventually were able to do so. To further complicate the matter, in the 1800s, all of the major powers in Europe were jockeying for position to take over the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was weak, was corrupt, was called the sick man of Europe. So Russia wanted a peace. Russia wanted the, the uh, Bosporus and the Dardanelles to give it access to the Mediterranean. And that's what the Crimean War was fought in the 1860s, 1850s rather, to prevent Russia. So France and England supported Turkey against Russia to prevent Russia from reaching the Mediterranean. Uh, France wanted, uh, Napoleon had already uh, conquered parts of the Middle East in his campaigns in the early 1800s. Napoleon uh, came here to the land of Israel. He besieged the city of Acre, which Yako, uh, near Haifa, but he could not conquer it. But he had uh, rule over Egypt. Uh, England was always interested in asserting itself in its imperialist days for control of the Middle East. And so slowly the Ottoman Empire was receding. 
Greece broke off and became an independent country. It was a great cause of England, Lord Byron and others who supported Greek independence. And then uh, parts of the Balkans broke off. The Slavs broke away. Serbia became a country. And the Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs, uh, threw them out of Hungary. And then they took over uh, Kosovo and Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it looked like whatever you wanted to take from Turkey, you could take. The Ottoman Empire was, uh, for all purposes, uh, a dead man walking. And now the Jews came into the country, small in number, but they were coming. There were uh, uh, 25, 30,000 Jews in the country already. And uh, we all know that uh, 25, 30,000 Jews make noise like 130,000. And since there never were any accurate numbers or population figures, etc., it posed a problem to the Ottoman Empire. Because it's all right to have dhimmis, but these people, first of all, they didn't speak Arabic and they didn't want to speak Arabic. They didn't speak Turkish. They had no intention of assimilating into the general population. They had no respect for the Turkish government. So what are you supposed to do with them? But the Jews were uh, fortunate, uh, we could use that word, because of the fact that all of the European powers created consulates, footholds here in the land of Israel and especially in Jerusalem. So there was an English consulate and the Anglican church sent missionaries to the country and built schools in the country. The French had a consulate. The French sent also missionaries. Not only missionaries, they sent Jewish organizations, the famous Alliance, that made schools and taught French culture and French language throughout the Middle East and here in Palestine and Jerusalem as well. So these things whittled away at the Ottoman Empire. There was the Russian compound, which exists until today. Putin wants it back, and we're stupid enough to talk to him about it. So the Russians, even though in, in Russia Jews were persecuted unmercifully, here the Russians said, well, they are Russian subjects of the Tsar, and our job is to protect them from the Turks to protect them from the Ottomans. And therefore, and then there was the famous Austrian consulate, which was the biggest, the Habsburgs, who uh, also had great pretensions here. And in the late 1800s, the Germans entered here, the Kaiser came, 
Now, there had been an organization called the Templar Knights during the Crusades. The Templar Knights were German, German Christians. They were called Templar because they fought for the temple. And they had established themselves on the island of Rhodes. And uh, the Kaiser uh, revived and refreshed the idea of Templar Knights. And the Kaiser encouraged German immigration to Palestine. The idea of red roofs, which you see throughout the country, that was brought by the Kaiser, by the Templar Knights. They were the first ones to make these red terracotta roofs. And the Kaiser thought that he was going to rule Palestine. It was part of the grand scheme of Germany's place in the sun. In fact, there was a very large German population here, the German colony, that existed until World War II. In World War II, England uh, rounded them all up and uh, exiled them because they were enemy aliens. But uh, the state of Israel has paid compensation uh, to all the Germans that own property here uh, before the Second World War. So uh, it's a, uh, an amalgamation of all sorts of different forces here. Now let's throw into the mix Zionism. Beginning uh, pre-Zionism begins in the 1870s when the organization of the lovers of Zion existed in Eastern Europe, the Chovev Then there were the Biluim, that was a small group of people that immigrated, that came to work the land here. And then there was Herzl. Now Herzl's great dream was that he was going to make a Jewish state somewhere in the world preferably in Palestine, but if not in Palestine, wherever he could. Therefore, he agreed to take Uganda when it was offered. Turkey viewed Zionism as its mortal enemy. The Ottoman Empire viewed it, and correctly so, that if Zionism succeeded, the Ottoman Empire would collapse completely. And therefore, uh, its attitude towards the Jewish community then existing in Palestine began to change for the worse. They no longer wanted to treat them as dimmies. They wanted to treat them as enemies. They felt that the Jews would subvert the Ottoman rule here. Also, by the fact that Jews were coming, some sort of economy was developing, money was coming from overseas, Jewish money was coming from Eastern Europe on a regular basis, and the Zionist movement 
created organizations such as the Jewish National Fund and the Karen Ayasod, which was investing money in the country, purchasing land. And the, the Ottoman Empire saw all of this as subverting them, destroying their uh, hegemony over the country. They wouldn't be able to control it. And therefore, uh, beginning in 1900, for the 15 or 20 years till England took over the country, the, the Ottoman Empire instituted a reign of terror here against the Jews. So that the early Jewish settlements, Merchavia and the other ones in the Galil, the Jews who lived in Jaffa, and the Jews who lived here in Jerusalem, lived under terrible conditions of poverty, and the Turks stirred up the Arabs with promises of booty and loot. And uh, now you had, if not pogroms, but you had armed attacks on a regular basis. JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine. I would assume we will uh, play, we'll start tomorrow morning's show with this lecture and then get into our Erev Shabbos selections um, appropriate for Erev Shabbos Chazon uh, tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM. Or... We'll, we'll adjust things according to what we feel is best. Anyway, our nine days format does continue on this Thursday. It's July 15th, the 6th of Menachem Av. Tisha B'Av is Sunday. Don't forget that our good friend Glenn Richter has a wonderful recommendation for how you could spend Tisha B'Av afternoon. Uh, traditionally, uh, our incredible, and I, and I do mean incredible, uh, Tisha B'Av service Mincha service happens at the Isaiah Peace Wall right across from the UN. This year it will be via Zoom. Uh, it'll be this Sunday, 1.45 p.m. will be Mincha, 2.45 p.m. will be the guest speakers. It is well worth it. It's over 40 years of calling attention to really important topics. This year, including anti-Semitism, uh, Israel being bombarded by Hamas terrorist rockets in the thousands, as you may recall. Uh, what's happening here in the United States in general. It's this Sunday, the virtual Tisha B'Av Isaiah Peace Wall prayer service for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide. Mincha 145, guest speakers at 245. Our suggestion, because it's, it's difficult to go through a whole Zoom ID on the air, our suggestion is you email them, and they'll be more than happy to provide the Zoom address for Sunday. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I, S-H-U-L-I, at thebayit.org. Shuli, S-H-U-L-Y, at thebayit, B-A-Y-I-T, dot org. So email Shuli, get the Zoom link, participate on Sunday. It will enhance your Tisha B'Av. That I could tell you unequivocally. It always enhances my Tisha B'Av being at the Isaiah Peace Wall. I'll tell you that much. And um, there's no question it will enhance your Tisha B'Av. Our schedule is relatively simple. We we anticipate having our weekly update. I did see Malcolm in Israel, and um, I believe he is landing tomorrow morning and will be back with us here at JMNAM. So we do anticipate our weekly update at 1.40 a.m. 
Eastern time at 1.40. At 7.40, maybe I was thinking of Israel somehow. <laughs> I don't know how that worked out. At 7.40 a.m. Eastern time here at JM and the AM tomorrow morning. Uh, so that's the uh, the first thing. And um, once Monday hits, uh, Monday the 10th of Av, we will, we will continue our annual tradition of... Um, playing the stories of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach on the 10th of Av. Tuesday will be our broadcast from Yom NCSY. Monday night will be at Yom NCSY, please God. Tuesday will be our broadcast from Yom NCSY. Join us, participate by sending us messages to include in Tuesday morning's show. If you know of somebody who will be at Yom NCSY, why not include them in the program? Uh, send your messages to nachum at nachumsegel.com, nachum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at Nahum Siegel, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L dot com. Subject line, Yom NCSY, and we will, of course, try our best to include that message in the um, in the presentation for Tuesday. We will be broadcasting, please God, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, and Thursday morning from Israel, a variety of locations, as is our tradition, including um, uh, Yom NCSY and NCSY Kolel. And then our plan is to be back here in studio Friday morning. So a short week, which is not uh, atypical for us in terms of travel. Uh, but we'll, we'll, what will likely be a very exciting week, no doubt, as we um, as we get to one of our favorite places, Israel and Yom Y. Actually, two of our favorite places. Uh, so we're looking forward to spending uh, that week, or I should say those three days in Israel, and then the returning, hopefully, to be in studio Pezrat Hashem on Friday morning, one week from tomorrow. Again, if you want to get a message to someone who's participating in Yom NCSY, who or, or who in general is just part of the NCSY summer program, um, that will certainly enhance our broadcast for a Tuesday morning. And that is um, uh, Nahum at NahumSegal.com, N-A-C-H-U-M at N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. And again, subject line, Yom NCSY. Tomorrow morning, Harry Rothenberg and Rabbi Yudin on the on the Torah portion of the week, which is Parshas Dvarim. We have Rabbi, uh, we have Malcolm Holmline, rather, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He will just be back from Israel. We are anticipating that he'll be able to join us. Please, God. Uh, tomorrow morning. And uh, that'll be amazing to hear about his uh, adventures and meetings and what he's found out about... Uh, Hopefully Israel reopening very soon, etc. We'll speak to them tomorrow about that. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listen to sponsored digital radio around the world of web and AlchemSegal.com and the AlchemSegal Network. And of course, the beloved NSN. And tomorrow morning, we're back starting at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us. Have a fabulous Thursday. If you don't subscribe to our daily thread, contact Avrami, AF at AlchemSegal.com. AF at NahumSiegel.com. Till tomorrow, NahumSiegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.